The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And today's joke of the week is being presented by one of our favorite rock and roll hall of famers. The one, the only Duff McKagan of Guns N' Roses. Hey, Chris Jericho, it's Duff McKagan. I'm um, calling you from my parking lot of the dry cleaners right now, actually. Just want to know that. Uh, I met a, a Buddhist who uh, refused anesthetic during a root canal surgery. His aim? Transcend dental medication. Thank you very much. Ah, very good. Very clever, Duff. Uh, also digging uh, that joke and digging Duff, uh, Duff's new single, Chip Away, which is the first song from his new solo album, Tenderness. That's coming out on May 30th. We'll definitely have Duff back on the show very, very quickly to talk about his new record and working with Shooter Jennings. And Duff will be back next Friday and every Friday with another classic or so-called classic joke of the week. All right. Today, return to the paranormal with an incredible phenomenon used by the CIA, the military, the Russian government, and even NASA. It's called remote viewing, which is like ESP, the psychic ability to describe things far away that you've never seen before. Very, very interesting and strange stuff. I got Russell Targ, one of the premier remote viewers who started the Stanford Research Institute back in the 70s. It was a lab used to teach CIA agents how to get in touch with their psychic abilities. And I've got documentary filmmaker Lance Mungia, who, along with Russell, produced the new Third Eye Spies doc, which is out now on iTunes, Amazon, YouTube, and Video On Demand. Go to thirdeyespies.com for more info on how you can see the film and to also access a bunch of extra footage and special features that didn't make the movie very, very interesting and kind of creepy type stuff. Uh, and actually, coming up later in the show, I'm going to tell you, uh, yeah, that's right, you, uh, how you can win a free digital copy of the Third Eye Spies movie. But first, remote viewing has been used by the CIA, U.S. military, and NASA for decades to find downed Russian bombers, to get details inside the Kremlin, and to do some space exploration. You'll hear all those stories, along with remote viewing, how it was used in the Patty Hearst kidnapping case. This is a true story. Lance and Russell talk about some of the most well-known remote viewers like Ingo Swan and Pat Price, and some of the projects and cases they worked on, very famous stuff. Fascinating phenomenon that Russell says anyone, even you and I, can experience. So let's get into how the psychic ability of remote viewing works and how it's been used throughout the years with Russell Targ and Lance Mungia right here, right now. Talk is Jericho. Okay, so one of the cool things over the last few years about having uh, the Jericho Network is the relationship I have uh, forged with Dave Schrader, 
who of course does Beyond the Darkness, the best uh, paranormal podcast out there right now. And Dave, I always say to him, if you have some interesting guests, throw them my way. Obviously, we, uh, we like having a lot of paranormal and interesting type of topics here in Talk is Jericho. And Dave said, you have to watch the documentary Third Eye Spies, which is about uh, remote viewing. And I watched it and became acquainted with um, interesting phenomenon. I got Russell Targ here, who is probably the expert on remote viewing and has been for decades. And then the director, uh, producer, creator of, of the documentary, Lance. Is this a Mungia? Mungia? It's, it's Mungia. And actually, um, uh, Russell also is is the uh, producer of the documentary as well. So, um, you know, we actually have a firsthand account and the guy actually producing the film. So, yeah. We're happy to be here. Just to, to kind of jump right into it here, I'm a big disciple of Art Bell. Uh, he talked about remote viewing so much. I know, Russell, you were on it quite a bit. But just explain exactly what remote viewing is for those who uh, aren't familiar with the term or don't know a lot about it. Yeah, I miss Art Bell. I was on with him many times yes. talking about psychic abilities. I listened to you on there many times, exactly. And he was always mentioning remote viewing and psychic abilities and you know, being a multi multi-time guest on that. He was, he was so, he was so good as an interviewer and he really uh, drew you into whatever topic he was talking about, whether you knew about it or not. Well, I was trained as a physicist, but I was always interested in psychic abilities because I did magic as a child. So I spent my first few years, teenage years on the stage pretending to be a magician, but really doing tricks like any other guy on the stage. But on the stage, you sometimes get images from what the person in the audience is thinking. And you can supplement your nasty old magic trick with some genuine ESP that comes your way. And I've talked to Melbourne Christopher and the great Kreskin. They say, well, we don't really support ESP, but we often have a chance to supplement our magic with whatever ESP comes, comes to us. So I felt that... Uh, I was on the right track. By the time I was leaving college, I was very familiar with the decades of psychic abilities that went on, and I was interested in learning how to do it and how it was done. So in 1972, I'd been working with lasers for two decades, and I decided to bet my career that I could create a ESP research laboratory and I'd already been working for NASA and working for the CIA. So I went to my old buddies back at the Puzzle Palace and said, I've got something entirely new to do. I want to start a ESP laboratory where we can teach your guys, your CIA operatives, we can teach them how to get in touch with their psychic abilities and describe what's going on in the distance. And that sounded pretty crazy, but I had done tough things for them before. We got the starter program at Stanford Research Institute in 1972. Now, remote viewing, which is what we were doing, remote viewing is an ability we all have to quiet our mind and describe and experience what's going on in the distance. So we can see in the distance, we can see into the future, and the most interesting thing that I can tell you, or at least it interests me as a physicist, is that it's no harder to describe what's going on in Soviet Siberia than it is to describe what's going on across the street in Palo Alto. Increasing the distance to thousands of miles 
does not make it any harder for an experienced remote viewer to accurately describe what Brezhnev's office looks like in the Kremlin. And not only that, we can see into the future up to days or weeks. So modern physics these days talks about something called non-local space-time. Non-locality is the hot topic in modern physics. And that's what we see in our remote viewing. It's non-local in that you can see into the distance, see into the future, and that making things further away did not make it harder. And the really good news is that it's a general ability. People are able to learn to do it. After I left the SRI program, I traveled all over the world doing workshops, teaching people in Scandinavia and Italy and England and Japan, teaching people how to do remote viewing. And the ability is so general that I would stand up on the stage in Milan, for example, and I say, I know you paid a lot of money to come here, and let me guarantee to you that I expect everybody here to either do something psychic or see something psychic. If that doesn't happen to you, we'll give you your money back. And the organizers were always very alarmed at that idea. <laughs> right. But in a decade of teaching people how to get in touch with their psychic ability, in a decade of that, no person ever asked me for their money back. So what you're saying is this isn't something that you have to be kind of a conduit for or have to be have a gift for it, that anybody has this ability within their, their mind they just have to open themselves up to it? It's a ability like any other ability, like, like a musical ability. Mm -hmm. Anybody can learn to play the piano a little bit. If you practice, you get better. But right. some people will never get to Carnegie Hall no matter how hard you practice, and some people will become virtuosos. So in remote viewing we found that many, many people can get to be quite good at remote viewing. Some people, almost everybody, can do a little remote viewing. If I, if I sold the program often by going to an administrator's office, and he said, well, show me something psychic. And I will say, I've got an interesting object in my briefcase. I will just show you how to describe that. And in five minutes, I would tell him, just quiet your mind and describe the surprising object that shows up in your awareness. I brought you a very interesting, peculiar object you may have never seen before. Just tell me, um, ambassador or administrator, just tell me about the surprising image that pops into your view. And for my decade in the program, something would always pop into his view and he would support our program. So I really went hand to hand, office to office, turning on people in the Pentagon and the CIA and NASA, just showing them how they can do it. I never did it. The only, I only, the only demonstration I ever did was Art Bell, where he would hold up something and say, okay, Russ, we're talking now for two hours. What have I got in my hand? So at two o'clock in the morning, he might convince me to do a remote. <laughs> so then what would you do? Just close your eyes and concentrate? Is it, is it a form of meditation of sorts? It's more meditation than concentration. It's really like surrendering. Hmm. That is what you're looking for. You quiet your mind. You take a couple of deep breaths. 
People know how to do that. If I say, all you've got to do is close your eyes and take a couple of deep breaths and then tell me about the surprising images that show up. Now, since all we want to know is what you're experiencing, you can't do that wrong because only you know what the right answer is. And that kind of induction does a trick. Hmm. What, what was some of the objects that Art would be holding up? Do you remember? One of the objects that I described very well is he had a, a roll of red tape. And I said, it looks like a hockey puck, but it's red. And it blew him away. <laughs> I can't believe it, Russ. You got it right. <laughs> but I'm not holding myself up as a great psychic. I've taught lots and lots of people how to do this. Huh. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Lance, when you're talking about Third Eye Spies, like I said, I watched this uh, yesterday. What prompted you to get involved and to make this movie? And, and how did you meet Russell and uh, get him aboard on this? You know, I I was familiar with Russell Targ and his partner Hal Putoff's work for a number of years, and also the fact that the Army had had a uh, remote viewing program and that they had used psychic abilities um, because there had been leaks over the years. So I, I knew little things because I had just sort of read you know some some books about it when I was a lot younger. But it was actually because um, Russell had seen my first movie called uh, Six String Samurai on probably on YouTube. Uh, and and uh, through a mutual friend, he had reached out to me as a director uh, because he had a completely different project that he was looking to, you know, develop and and maybe make. And um, we wound up having this incredibly interesting and long phone conversation. You know, just he, when he called me, he just called me, "Hey, this is Russell Targ, and I'd like to talk to you about my project." And and I said, "You know, that's that's cool, and I'd love to read your project, but." the real thing you should be talking about here is the amazing work that you did for for 10 years at, at Stanford Research Institute and how that kind of grew into this very um, well-used operational program that the CIA and pretty much every agency of the U.S. intelligence services used uh, to great effect. And and um, I still didn't know all the details, but he said, you know, that's that's a good idea. And, 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 you know, Ingo Swan, who was one of their very best psychics that they ever worked with had just passed away. And so it was sort of, there became this kind of urgency to kind of get everybody else's story on, on film. And, and Russell basically surprised me on that first phone call and said, you know, I'll just fly down to LA and, you know, he's in, in San Francisco and, um, and we'll just spend the weekend and we'll talk about it. And, and so he came out with this giant briefcase of, you know, just chock full of documents that you're looking at them and going, you know, am I going to get in trouble for looking at this stuff? Because I mean, it was incredibly, uh, you know, uh, it was all declassified now, but just amazing, you know, remote viewings and, you know, sort of target to drawing comparisons and stuff. And it was so incredible. I, I even though I was sort of aware of this stuff, I, I didn't know it to that extent and, and what they had really done. And, and when I really started to find out, the next question I think both he and I asked is, if we do this film, are we in danger? I right. mean, is there, is there going to be blowback from CIA or somebody else because 
maybe we're dipping into something that we shouldn't be dipping into. And, and ultimately we decided that, you know, so much of it had been declassified and the only way to really kind of protect a project like this and, and, and to make it legitimate for, for people who don't know anything about this topic of basically your ability to close your eyes and imagine something in the distance that may be hidden and then be able to accurately draw that or, or come up with some interpretation of that is, is that we needed as many firsthand witnesses and, and testimonies to go with the data because Russell had been talking about data like you said, on Art Bell and other places, as much as he could. But there were still a lot of things that had just been more recently declassified. And there were a lot of people who were kind of like the missing links who who had not come forward yet. And um, we reached out to, you know, pretty much everybody that had been involved with the original programs. And, and we wound up getting, um, you know, like people like Ken Kress, who was the undercover CIA uh, physicist who was running the program at its inception, and Kit Green, who was the former uh, director of life sciences for CIA, who was one of their original program monitors and uh, a big booster of the program. People like that who, who brought an enormous amount of credibility to what had been done. And, and, and then finally, the last sort of deciding factor in making the film was we decided okay, one impossible thing at a time, you know, like we're going to go find the very, very best stories and the people that were actually involved. And then we're going to commit that to film. And um, we're not going to fly off into the, you know, outer space and look at other things or, or, or whatever. We're, we're going to just, you know, stay, stay grounded with this and make this a really great document of the history, regardless of what you think of the operational work that was done for the government. Um, you know, the evidence for ESP, you know, and, and uh, remote viewing is overwhelming. And it's not even something that you can, you have to judge or kind of look at and go, gee, I don't know. I mean, you know, they had, um, speaking of flying out into outer space, they had Ingo Swan looking at the rings of Jupiter, you know, ice rings around right. Jupiter that described months before the, even the first probe from Earth got there. So that's not about judging. That's that's just about uh, a, a phenomenon that science did not yet really have a handle on. And that was really the thing that attracted me most to make this film is that we're like talking about something that could really create a paradigm shift, uh, you know, in, in a lot of people. And I think in, in the scientific community, if this is taken seriously, you know, and um, it, it, there'd been talk about this before, but I think the collective weight of, of all of the work being discussed in one place, uh, you know, with a lot of people who were very well respected, you know, like Brian Josephson, who was a Nobel Prize winner, you know, appears in the film. Uh, Edgar Mitchell, who was the sixth man who walked to walk on the moon, appears in our film. And, and I think that our, our sort of gamble on this has paid off because now, uh, you know, Third Eye Spies is, uh, you know, trending in the top five um, on the documentary charts on iTunes. What makes this film unique is that it's not just a documentary showing our amazing remote viewing, and we do that also, but the fact that we got the CIA operators on camera saying, yes, we were polygraphed, we were with this film, we were with this project for a decade, and what Targ is saying here really happened, and we were there. So the idea to get senior CIA operators on camera testifying that what you're saying is true is quite, it makes us into a, a unique event rather than just our saying it. Well, let me just ask this. There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of ground that you guys just covered there. And there's some interesting points uh, for both you guys. I mean, uh, Lance, when you made the movie and Russell, when you started doing this in the early seventies, did you get blowback 
from the CIA and from from the powers that be, because I thought it was very interesting in the documentary uh, how seriously Ted Koppel was taking the whole concept of of remote viewing and, and you know, psychically being able to, to solve mysteries and crimes and find out basically war data. It was just basically talked about like a common thing in 1984. Seems like it wouldn't be as easily accepted in this day and age. So my question is twofold. One, how was it for you when you first started talking and pitching this to the government? And what was it like when you made the documentary now? When we started this program in 1972, people were inquisitive. Whatever you think about the CIA, there are they are a bunch of nasty murderers, but they're not stupid. <laughs> right. So the people, people we're working with gave us their very first task. They said, well, this doesn't make any sense to us. Can you tell what's going on at those co- these coordinates? And Pat Price, a retired police commissioner, and Ingo Swan, who really invented remote viewing in the modern age, they both described a national, an NSA uh, listening post in Virginia, and they dove down into the place, were able to read code words that were top secret. So we didn't get blowback because they didn't believe us. We got blowback from the owner of the facility saying, what the hell are you guys doing releasing top secret code words from projects in the basement of this building? So our credibility was quite good to start with because we could really deliver what we claimed to deliver. So early in the program, we were asked to describe a Soviet weapons factory in Siberia. And Pat Price said, I see this giant crane rolling over my body as I lay in the sunshine. And then the green pulled out a big roll-up map and showed us a CIA satellite photo, a top secret photograph, literally top secret, showing the huge gantry crane on the left. And we showed on the right the gantry crane that Pat Price drew. And there's a moment of silence while they took that all in, that he had really moved 6,000 miles to the east and described a top secret photograph or top secret crane in Siberia. And then he went on to describe huge metal spheres underground that were being fabricated. And they didn't know anything about the spheres until two years later, the Russians finally opened up the building and there were 60 foot spheres, absolutely exactly like Price described. So after his death, after his death, I think they, they know it was not public or even known by U.S. intelligence until after Pat had died. So that's that's crazy to me. So we had we had blowback from the usual skeptics. The amazing Randy still doesn't believe in ESP, but the CIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, the FBI, NASA, Army Intelligence, Navy Intelligence, and so we worked we worked for every intelligence agency in the government. Everybody had some tasks for us to do. We once looked in on the Iranian hostages. They wanted to know. Can you tell us about the person in the envelope? And we didn't know anything about it at all. Hmm. Somebody from Chief of Naval Operations, uh, Jake Stewart, who the Navy captain came and said, tell us about the person in this envelope. And the psychic said, well, this guy's in the dark and he's very sick. He's dying. He can hardly walk. He looks like he's going to die. 
but wait a minute, I see him walking out of this place into the sunshine, that's what I get. So it's a 10 minute remote viewing, very, very sick, but he's walking into the light. Two days later, we learned that this guy was Richard Queen, the American ambassador to Iran, who was one of the hostages. And because he had come down with multiple sclerosis, the Iranians were releasing him and he was gonna fly the two days off to Augsburg, Germany to go to the hospital. So we knew two days in advance that the guy was sick, he was dying, but he was gonna be released and would safely go to the hospital. And he lived several more years. But that that's typical of our day in SRI. People from very high, Jake Stewart was a very high level Navy intelligence guy, and people would just pop in with a task for us to do. Could be from the CIA or the Navy or NASA. They'd want to know something. The NASA task, we were building an ESP teaching machine. And I should mention that was a successful project. And my ESP trainer is still alive at iTunes. So if you go to the your your little Apple computer, right. you can you can download ESP trainer and have a four-choice gadget that I made for NASA to help people develop their abilities. I, I want to um, add one thing to what you were asking, Chris, which yes. is that when Russell and I first sat down to talk about making Third Eye Spies, um, I asked him, you know, me thinking just kind of as a storyteller, you, you know, I asked him, you know, who's the villain of the piece? You know, like, like what, what is the thing that you were sort of fighting against? You know, um, is it just the, the Soviets? I mean, were you worried about the Soviets and them, you know, taking you out or something? I mean, you know, like what was really the villain? He thought about it for a minute and he said, dogma. You know, it, it was the scientific and the religious dogma um, within the intelligence community itself. Um, you know, that that they they really when you talk about blowback, I think that's the kind of blowback that they got. Uh, and I actually when he said that, I thought, you know, I don't know if that's really, um, you know, you know, something that would really hold you back because the evidence you're getting is so incredible. But it was only after speaking to almost everyone, you know, that we spoke with who, who all came back with sort of almost a hesitancy uh, to to talk about this stuff, not because they didn't, you know, not because they didn't think it was valid or real, but because um, they had all experienced some sort of um, dogmatic skepticism and and not just from sort of like the typical skeptical community, but from inside government. I mean, you know, in the film, Ken Crest tells a story about how, um, you know, he was taking all of this really great information and data to his superiors. And at first they couldn't even get analysts to look at it. Because the analysts were saying, "Oh, we don't believe in this," or, "Or you know, this this could be the devil, or this could be right. uh, you know something horrible," you know. And I was shocked by that because we we were, we sort literally, of, we were like, literally accused of working with the Antichrist. The longest field goal ever attempted is seventy-six yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also seventy-six yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Who has accused you of working with the Antichrist and how could they even connect the dots on that? With a group of psychologists, fundamental fundamentalist psychologist at the CIA. 
that said this is um, so far from my thinking that I can't remember. I, re I remember they said that this is you're you not, devil's powers. It, it's a devil. <laughs> that's, that's it. You're working with the devil, and the Antichrist is giving you this data, and we just never saw them again. Where did the blowback come from? In general, our work was so significant that the people who are opposed to it didn't interfere with our program. They gave they gave us a lot of crazy opposition we had to deal with, but we had things like we were once called to help find Patricia Hearst when she was kidnapped, 1974, and Pat Price went with me and my partner Hal put off to the Berkeley police station and the policeman in Berkeley said, well, we know you're a retired policeman. We have questions to ask you. And Price was totally no-nonsense, no-bullshit policeman. and said, let me just show you how we do this. Get, pull, give me your mug book. Pulled on the big loose-leaf binder with the pictures of all the people they had arrested for decades. And we just stood with Price and the uh, officer, the detective, and Price took turn page after page after page, and then he put his finger on a guy and said, that's the ringleader. And he put his finger on Donald DeVries, who was indeed the ringleader. I actually spoke with two of the police officers that were involved with that and with finding the the uh, the kidnap car uh, that, that uh, Patty Hearst was uh, taken in. And and it didn't appear in the film because by that time we had so much material. I, I just, you know, I, I couldn't make the trip to, to, to actually put them in the film. But, um, but the, the thing is, it, it was obvious to me that even after all of these years, these guys still recalled this so well because they couldn't figure it out, you know, because Pat Price described, you know, uh, shell casings in the car and, and, and the, and they were there, you know, things, things like that, like, you know, the color of the car, where exactly it would be identified by these, uh, you know, this, this kind of, uh, you know, water right. tower or something on the side of the road. We were, we were living in a psychic bu bubble. We stood there, Price put his finger on Donald DeVries, and they said, well, we know him. He escaped from minimum security prison a year ago. And Price said, well, you'll find him. And this is a political crime. It's not a crime just for money. But I suppose you guys want to find the car. And he just closed his eyes and said, it's a white station wagon about 50 miles north of here on Highway 101, so it's on the left side of the road across from some big water, uh, gas storage, big white gas storage tanks. If you just drive north on 101, you'll see it. And they launched a police cruiser, and within 10 minutes, that we had the kidnapped car. Wow. Of course, the kidnappers weren't there anymore, but as Lance said, we knew it was the right car because their cartridges were still on the floor. And and literally, you know, Pat Price was a guy who, before he even reached out to SRI, was was somebody who uh, detectives in uh, in his department at the at the Burbank Police Station just knew that uh, if they had a tough case, they could just go in and talk to Pat and you know maybe show him a map or something and say where do you think this stolen car is or something and and Pat could you know, often just tell them exactly where, uh, you know, the criminal was hiding. You know, you'd say, I see a, a guy, he's, he feels very like sort of out of sorts and his heart's racing and he's trying to hide and, and he's hiding over here. So I, I think that's him. Why don't you go look there? And, and you know, this was just something that, that sort of Pat did in his detective work in, at, at, at the police station. And and he heard uh, um, some of this public things that, that SRI had, had uh, published, you know, he had read. And um, because he had an interest in it, he called them up and said, hey, I'd like to be a subject. And that's how he got involved. It's 
pretty amazing. Have there ever been criminals that were caught due to remote viewing outings, I guess? I think that now, these days, remote viewing has sort of become a sort of a underground industry right. unto itself. You know, um, I've spoken to a lot of contemporary remote viewers, you know, like people like Lori Williams, who is also in our film. She's the lady at the end who who teaches the Russians. Um, you know, she does work for corporations. Um, so does Joe McMonagall, uh, police departments. Uh, they, you know, they find, uh, you know, missing people. Um, you know, they, uh, Joe actually does, um, Joe McMonagall being the very best you know, sort of most well-known army remote viewer who won the Legion of Merit award, the highest award you can get in the U.S. intelligence services for for doing something for his remote viewing. Um, you know, he he will sit there and um, do product development for companies. You know, like he'll, they'll say, hey, what is, what's the trend like looking in right. 10 years in our industry? And he, he told me a story that uh, about 10 years before eBooks, he, he told a book publisher, you know, who had hired him that, um, you know, don't put any more money into paper. You know, it's all going to be digital. And he, of course, he was right. Right. <laughs> you know, when you talk about um, you mentioned it's kind of gone a little bit underground with the CIA. And I, I brought this up earlier, how just watching, I think it was Dateline or with Ted Koppel. And they're talking about it like it's just, a, you know, as, as much a part of the military as, you know, uh, soldiers marching. So has this kind of gone officially underground with the CIA at this point? In the film, Kit Green said that he's talked to the current director of director of intelligence at CIA, and they said that there's still work going on. So Kit said, this works so well, why would they not continue it? Mm -hmm. And I trained two CIA operational people who came to the lab, and we know that after Pat Price was brought to the CIA to work, CIA took Price from Stanford and had him working as a consultant directly for the CIA together with two CIA people that I had trained. So they had this little book group where they were doing uh, remote viewing. I don't think it was ever a big project, but the three of them, the, the man and the woman I trained and Pat Price, we know from uh, Ken Crest that they were working together at SRI, at, at CIA. Now you mentioned the book. One of the things that I've told you a lot of things, but even, uh, we opened our film uh, with Jimmy Carter. We were able to find an airplane for him. There was a downed Russian bomber that crashed in Africa, and it was full of intelligence information. It was a bomber, but it was recon doing reconnaissance. It was full of code books, which are even more valuable than bombs. And they knew it was in northern Africa someplace, and they couldn't find it because it was in the jungle, and satellite photography cannot penetrate the jungle. So they called on us to try and find the bomber. And one of our people, together with one of the Air Force people, was able to find the bomber, put a circle on a map, and locate the bomber. And Jimmy Carter opens our film describing this event. Yeah, I saw that quote is amazing from Jimmy Carter. Yeah, because he just said it a couple years ago, too. Yeah, it's it's uh you know for years this was like the the big fish that I couldn't land. You know, I cuz cuz I would hear the story that Carter had been on record talking about this bomber and actually that was a big reason why the program was actually I think canceled in the 90s because our because finding, our finding the Russian bomber is even in Jimmy Carter's uh last book a full life. Mm -hmm. So he 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 said this is the most remarkable thing that happened to him in his life as president. 
That's right. And and literally, you know, we were searching around for any kind of video clips or something. He had given a speech at Emory University and somebody asked Carter, you know, what's the weirdest thing you ever saw as president? And and he he told the story about finding this bomber. He said the director of CIA came to me and said, you know, there's some psychics out in California that we work with. Maybe they can find this bomber for us. And Carter said, well, it can't hurt. You know, go ahead and give it a shot. He said, and all I know is they came back with the exact coordinates and we looked there and there was the bomber. And we found, you know, different participants that had actually taken place, uh, took part in that mission, like Dale Graff, uh, you know, who was the head of the DIA, you know, version of the remote viewing program. And, and he sort of described the whole thing for us. But he also said that that was a major reason why the program got canceled. Why? You know, because basically Carter outed a top secret program a special access program that he didn't know was a special access program. And and he did it in the presence of CNN, you know, at this speech at Emory University. And so all of a sudden, that same year, like a couple of months later, the CIA commissions a report to study remote viewing. Um, and, and they had actually been out of the picture for a number of years. We, we think of the government as this kind of monolithic thing, and it's it's not. The intelligence communities sometimes don't, don't um, communicate. Everything's kind of stovepipe. But they were handed the project back after not having the project you know, from DIA for several years. And they commissioned a report to see if it was ever useful. They never spoke to any of the program participants. They never talked talk to Russ. They didn't talk to Hal Putoff. They didn't talk to any of the Army remote viewers that were still working. And they basically just decided, oh, this was never useful for operational intelligence. We never used it. It was just something we played with for 20 years that we funded. And then that year, they just kind of quietly folded the program, and the program went away. Hmm. So it's like the, it's, it's one of those things the typical government wanted to keep it uh, behind the scenes uh, because if something like that got out, there's still a lot of people that would think that that you're crazy for trying this, and this is ridiculous. This is where our, our tax dollars are going. Exactly, exactly. That was a large part of it. That that was something that a lot of the people we interviewed talked about was that the giggle factor. You know, they were always right. afraid of getting the Golden Fleece Award that, that for the dumbest you know expenditure of cash or something like <laughs> that. But but the thing is that remote viewing. It took years to kind of gain momentum um, at the highest levels of of Congress and you know presidential briefings and uh, you know congressional committees uh, being briefed on this stuff and and um, that to me was another thing that was really interesting because you could see the oversight and and the amount of sort of support that was happening uh, even though at the same time they were some kind of getting some opposition there were real staunch defenders of this within the highest levels of government because it worked and it worked really well you know but the the thing is um, like Russell said, you could have a book club with three or four guys at CIA or some other agency and be doing this. And and you don't necessarily need that kind of oversight. You know, Russell and Hal uh, in this program, they built up that level of respect because they already had those connections at high level through prior work they had done in laser research for CIA and for, for other government agencies. And that was back when the CIA and the other agencies didn't know that it worked. Now they know it works. And, and they're not so much concerned about understanding how it works. You know, Ken Crest told me, he said, if you want to study science, don't sign up with the CIA. You know, the CIA doesn't care how it works. They care, is it useful or not? You know, and so they'll use it, but they don't necessarily understand how the mechanism that underlies it works. That's a big reason why Russell, I think, has spent so much of his life trying to get this information into the public sphere, because it's information that science and, and we as sort of human beings should be should be taking seriously. You know, it's it's something that obviously exists in some form. So that means that there's something wrong with the underlying model 
uh, of scientific theory that we're dealing with. But the CIA doesn't care about that or any other government agency. And I actually think that just just my opinion from talking to a lot of the different remote viewers that if if they are doing it today it's no longer a big agency thing with a huge budget and um, a lot of oversight from senates and senators and 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 uh, you know the house of representatives it's it's just um something that they put aside a small amount of money for and then they they basically hand it off to a company in the way that you would hand off a military uh, exercise to blackwater you know it's all contractors the way that it originally started at SRI because you know if you're someone who has a company doing remote viewing now and uh, you're working for corporations and other people and then somebody contacts you and gives you some crazy target you know like why don't you look in um you know China and see what's going on here and then you start getting things right they can pull that information back into government and never even tell you that it was classified, you know, because, you know, you don't know and, and you don't have the resources to check to see if what you got was accurate. But the government does. What they cannot do is pull into the government the fact that people have the ability to do it. The year I left SRI, 1982, I formed a little group called Delphi Associates, and we wanted to make it clear to people that psychic abilities are out in the world. So the first thing we did was set up our little group to forecast changes in the silver commodity market. And at the end of, of 1982, uh, silver was being traded actively by the Hunt brothers. So we thought our broker thought that that nice volatile silver futures would be perfect for psychic ability. So we made nine forecasts in November and December of 82 where the silver was going up a little, up a lot, down a little, or down a lot, and all nine of our forecasts were correct. So we made $120,000 in those nine weeks. And that was a lot of money in the 1980s. And we were written up in the Wall Street Journal saying, did the San Francisco firm corner the silver market? Front page. Hmm. And, and, and now there's a lot of interest. So an organization called IRVA, International Remote Viewing Association, that's very interested in using psychic abilities for investing in various markets. So I actually, I, yeah, I actually did a 20-minute a uh, featurette. Like, you know, we did a 20-minute um, mini documentary that's also on iTunes that you can find uh, and also on our um, YouTube channel, um, which is youtube.com Waking Universe TV, all about what Russell is, is talking about predicting gambling, actually. Like, you know, like there's a, there's a, a organization called um, AppFest or App, uh, the Applied Precognition Project that, Monty Rosen, that, that uh, Marty Rosenblatt, who's also a physicist, is doing experiments with gambling and sports betting. And um, he, they're finding about 75% accuracy consistently when they should be getting 25% by chance. And, uh, you know, that's in incredible. So, and that technique was pioneered by Russell and, and the silver futures that he's talking about. And, and now it's sort of become something that's used a lot. You're saying that people are using remote viewing to guess the scores of games? Um, you can't literally guess the score, but but what they'll do is it's called associative remote viewing. So so what they'll do is they'll say, uh, okay, we're going to do an over under prediction in betting, and um, you know, is the sports is the combined uh, score going to be this um, over a certain amount or under a certain amount? And um, they'll show photographs um, to, um, or actually, no one will see the photographs, but they'll pick two two photographs that are very different. And they'll um, and they'll tell the remote viewers, uh, okay, in 30 minutes after the game, um, we're going to show you one of two pictures. Why don't you close your eyes and imagine what you will see 
in 30 minutes. That's how Russell did the silver experiments as well. It was a little so more. It's as though your whole gang of people predominantly described the Eiffel Tower and the other picture was the Grand Canyon. You wouldn't do it exactly that way. But if you got a whole bunch of people choosing the up target, then you'll all run down to the gambling counter, lay down your dough, and within 20 minutes when the high scores come in, you all collect for betting on over. I picked that because the last time I was in Las Vegas with Marty Rosenblatt, who's running this little Life gambling adventure, mm-hmm. I did just that. And we're in an auditorium. Great preponderance of people chose the up target, whatever it was, and then we all ran to lay our $100 bills and quickly collected our 150 plus our own. So that's the very fastest that I ever made $100. <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't always it doesn't always work, and we should say that, because um, when I was actually filming this little mini-doc that you can see on YouTube or, or on iTunes, I was going around and looking at the um, the judging, because what they'll do is they'll take all of the remote viewers' you know, drawings and, and descriptions of what they sort of psychically were seeing, and then they'll give that to a panel of like three judges that are in another location, and they'll sit there and, and compare what the, what's been drawn with, with the photographs. And I'm sitting there with the camera, and I'm going over this, and um, there was one remote viewer in particular that I was carefully following because I knew he was very well known. His name is Jeffrey Mishloff, and he's, he's uh, um, you know, been involved with remote viewing for many, many years. He's worked with Russell. And and so I figured, you know, whatever this guy gets is probably going to be right. And so I'm, I'm really paying attention. And um, one of the photos was of a, a nuclear submarine on the water. And Jeffrey, like, draws this, like, cylinder, and he draws, like, a you know, an, an X on top, like a conning tower, and he says it's something nuclear, something on the water, like a city on the water that goes both above and below the water. You can't get a better description than that, right? So, so but the judges were very, very cautious, and, and looking at the body of all of the different drawings, they passed. They didn't bet because not enough people, you know, picked one of the, the two targets correctly, so they just didn't bet on that one. But I told my wife, I said, you know, I got to go down and bet at least a hundred bucks on this because this guy is like for real, you know, he's, he's the real deal. He, if he says it's right, you know, if, if he, and he nailed that target, there must be something to this. So I bet a hundred bucks and I freaking lost it, you know? And, and then afterwards I called, I called Russell and I said, I said, Russ, you know, you're not going to believe it. You know, Jeffrey Mishlov got this amazing, you know, rendition of the target and, and, but I lost. And, and he said, well, of course you lost because Jeffrey is very well known for getting perfect descriptions of the exact wrong target. <laughs> so. That's why we use majority vote in these things. Now, now in, our, in our film, in the Third Eye Spies, we have all these people on camera. So you, you don't have to go to the CIA uh, to get the information. NASA supported our ESP game for teaching ESP. They also came into my office and said, we're about to launch a Pioneer spacecraft toward Jupiter. And Ingo Swan was there. And they said, well, Mr. Swan, are we going to find anything interesting when we get to Jupiter? And Swan sits back with his fat cigar and said, yeah, I I, I see a big fat ring around Jupiter. You're going to be very surprised to find this ring around Jupiter, ice ring. And... Our contract monitor, George Pezzer, said, well, well, Ingo, you're, you're, you must be looking at Saturn that has rings. And Ingo sort of huffed and puffed and said, I've been looking at this space for 50 years. I know the difference between Jupiter and Saturn. Mm-hmm. When you get to Jupiter, you're going to see this big surprising ring. 
And even though it's 500 million miles away, Ingo described it instantaneously. It took him no time wow. to reach out from Palo Alto to Jupiter. And indeed, nine months later, they did find the rings around Jupiter that nobody had seen before. So when people say, well, what are the limits? Uh, can you see anywhere on the planet? The answer is yes, you can see anywhere on the planet and off the planet. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. A couple names that you've mentioned a few times, and they're in the film, Ingo Swan and, uh, and, and Pat Price. And another kind of, I guess, uh, event that's uh, tied in with all of you guys is, is the Stargate Project. Explain a little bit about what that is. Well, Stargate is the name program was given after President Carter blew the previous name. It was Grill Flame. It had been Grill Flame for about eight years. And then uh, Jimmy Carter stood up on the stage at Emory and talked about Project Grill Flame that found the airplane he was looking for. Right. So that, of course, was the end of Grill Flame. He, blew, he sort of blew our top secret code word. <laughs> So we changed the name, or the CIA changed the name from Girlframe to Stargate, and it was Stargate for the next several years. Well, I, actually, I think that um, Stargate was 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 one of the program names. They often would change the names, but it also was um, particular to the U.S. Army unit. You know, again, it wasn't like one group that was doing this all throughout the U.S. You know, government and intelligence agencies. You had Stanford Research Institute, which was a, a contractor for the government. They they uh, closed the CIA contract with Stanford Research Institute early in the sort of history of the program, but that did not stop SRI from working with all of the other agencies of government. And one of the contracts that they developed was with the U.S. Army, and and the U.S. Army actually screened about, I think they said, what was it, like six or uh, so, I forget the number of people, but it was like several thousand people. What they did was they um, sent out in a magazine that went out to the U.S. intelligence community uh, in the Army um, at, at Fort Meade, Maryland, um, a questionnaire, and there was a prize. And so if you if you uh, answered all the questions, you get enrolled in a raffle or something, and maybe you win a prize. And this was done on purpose by U.S. intelligence to try to find really good people to pull into this program. And they were basically looking for people who were uh, you know, um, amiable, um, you know, um, really good at whatever else they were doing, successful in some other area. Um, maybe they'd had like near death experiences or um, some other kind of psychic hunches in their in their lifetimes. And they weren't really too worried about their career because doing remote viewing in the army was not a big career promotional move. And, and uh, one of the people that they found was Joe McMonagall, who uh, was a, um, CFO, you know, chief warrant officer in the army. So he was already kind of at the height of what he thought was his career. Decorated Vietnam veteran. You know, um, this guy um, was the guy that would go out on point in the, in the jungle um, because he had a knack for avoiding landmines. And that was something that he put in his questionnaire or something. So they called him in um, and they called about 30 recruits in out of that several thousand that they initially screened. Now on the opposite side in the Soviet Union, 
um, it, it's also come out that they were screening pretty much every draft age. I got to interview those 30 people and I show Hal and I, my partner and I show six of them and brought them to SRI and taught them how to do remote viewing in a way that works very well. Everybody has intuition, but we help them separate the psychic signal from the mental noise, looking for surprising things rather than guessing. And of the six people, we then did experiments with them over six weeks. And those six people we chose were successful at odds of a million to one. So we sent those six people back to Fort Meade and they helped form the Army Psychic Corps, which was in business for a decade after they left SRI. Yeah, and this was just one aspect of right. the U.S. intelligence community that was doing this. And and we still, to this day, don't know, you know, were there other units? I mean, I've heard stories about there being, you know, remote viewings being done in the Air Force, you know, being done in other agencies, um, you know, because once – SRI had proven this as as a real thing. You know, originally CIA thought that this was completely bogus. I mean, they were just looking to debunk it. You know, like they 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 knew that the Soviet Union was spending buku bucks and and lots and lots of laboratories all around the Soviet Union to study ESP and actually the intelligence was saying they were using it operationally. So they were worried about it, but they they thought maybe it was propaganda, but once it was proven, and, and they had really used this operationally in the military, then SRI was not as crucial to this because, um, like Russell said, you know, there were some CIA guys and, and, a, and a woman that came out and uh, were trained in this, and they went back to CIA, and we don't know what happened there. You know, so it's a skill that was easy enough that, that um, CIA and some of the other agencies didn't trust outsiders with it originally because they thought they were being duped. So they brought it in-house, and the Army wanted to have their own program, so they created it. And uh, so they all sort of became kind of independent entities that would loosely work together and be tasked on things. But often, you know, they didn't know what the other parts of the that we lost our star. Pat Price was this great remote viewer who found the weapons factory in Russia and the secret code words in the NSA. And he was so psychic, the CIA got nervous about him hanging out with all the hippies in California. So mm-hmm. the CIA... After Price described the weapons factory in Russia, this top secret entity, they brought him back to work as a contractor in Virginia for the CIA. They took him away from us, plopped him into a farm field in Virginia, and four months later, he was dead. Wow. 57-year-old man doing a miracle a day. He was working with Ken Kress as a operations psychic utility he even penetrated the we talk in the film uh with ken chris describes how price penetrated the code room of the libyan embassy as a yeah as a test mm-hmm. and that was the last thing he did and then he died mysteriously so we don't know why this 57 year old man died four months after going to work for the cia so but the, the obvious connotation would be that that the cia took him out mm. Maybe, maybe. I mean, um, that is a, that is definitely a possibility. But the but the Soviets were also clearly tracking what Pat and SRI, but especially Pat, was doing. And uh, you know, some people think the KGB killed him. Um, you know, some people think the CIA killed him because there were some sort of questions about uh, what he was telling his church, and um, you know, he was maybe divulging classified information and this kind of thing. 
And if you can't trust the guy that basically can look into your deepest, darkest secrets mm-hmm. and, you know, read whatever's on your desk or maybe read the presidential schedule or the code words, right. you know, then what do you do? You can't bring him before a tribunal and say, this guy's psychic and he's looking inside my head. I mean, you can't, you can't do that, you know, cause you sound nuts, you know, but, but, uh, or you divulge, you know, classified information. But, but then again, you know, like, um, you know, as somebody says in the movie, you know, he also was kind of like the goose that lays golden eggs. But the CIA did have, as we say in the movie, a, a heart attack gun. You know, this was something that they actually developed, and we talk about it in the film, and, you know, Russell kind of debates that. Explain that. This is a gun that could fire a, a dart made out of ice, which they could load into the gun, and it was something that would, like, like uh, shellfish toxin, you get a tiny amount of this liquid in the person's body and it would stop his heart. Hmm. And that was something that was discussed on camera. Well, it's in our film. It's right. in Third Eye Spy, but it was also discussed before the... Oh, the, uh, the church committee, right? Church commission. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, we, and we, have the, we have a picture of a heart attack gun and talk about talk. Wow. So we don't know why Price died, but it made them very nervous to have this freelance, free spirit guy who could read the la- nuclear launch codes in the pocket of the president, and he was just bopping around in his field talking to his friends. You know, and and Russell actually went out and visited him. You visited Pat while he was on this farm, right? And and it was kind of like they wanted to sequester Pat in a way. And and uh, Ken Crest told me this that that uh, they didn't trust Russell. They didn't trust SRI. It was so incredible the information they're getting that that they thought there must be some kind of leak. You know, um, you know, Pat either either is working for the Soviet Union or he's working for some other agency or somebody's feeding him the info. So they needed to sequester him away. And and to be fair, you know, Ken Crest and you know, you know he left the project before Pat died. When they took Pat into the CIA, Ken already was sort of seen as being you know, too much in the tank for the psychics because he had seen all this stuff firsthand. And even though he was a very, you know, non-judgmental, you know, very level-headed physicist, you know, they wanted somebody different. So he he can't tell us what happened once that price went into CIA. But, you know, Russell, you went out and visited him on on the farm, right? What was that like? Well, Price was there in costume. They had Price dressed up in his bib top overalls and a straw hat with a pitchfork, pretending to be as like he's from central casting to be a farmer because they, they were nervous about him. And the reason they were nervous about me, they didn't doubt my security. I still had my top secret clearance. But in the film, Crest said, well, you were too enthusiastic. And I said, well, I spent 10 years in a dark room teaching people how to find submarines and airplanes. So I was, I, there's no doubt that I thought that ESP was real. Well, how about you? And uh, they, they were they were concerned about my enthusiasm, and they took Price away. The reason that the Army wanted us to train up Army officers to do remote viewing is that they were embarrassed about having to always come to SRI in California. It's the California effect. They didn't want to have to come to California to find their downed bomber or their submarine. And that's why uh, we trained up the Army people to create a Army Psychic Corps in Maryland. Hmm. One of the things I found... That went on another decade. One one of the things I found fascinating about the sort of 
idea of SRI being at Stanford Research Institute and all of this was completely unknown. You know, the work was not known that was going on. It was completely classified. But they would get all of these visits from dignitaries, you know, um, senators and, yeah. and uh, you know, people like that um, who were highly skeptical of what was going on. And we were like, I have to see this for myself. And, and they'd show up at the lab and then Russell and Howell would say, well, if you want to see it, okay, but we're not going to show it to you. You're going to do it. Hmm. And, and they'd sit them down in the chair and then make them the remote viewers. And I found that so fascinating. And there's so many great stories about how it would just completely shake up these generals and, and, and senators and people who would come in completely spectacle and go, oh, this is ridiculous. Uh, I'm, I'm just, I don't see anything. I just see the back of my eyelids. And Russell would just say, you know, that's okay. Just pretend, imagine it, make it up. And then they would like make this stuff up and and somehow they were tapping into something because then later they would take them out to the place where their attache or someone else was hiding in Palo Alto somewhere and it would be exactly correct. Right. And 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 then they would all of a sudden become big boosters for the program. And that's actually how they kept their their program going for so long. One of the people I had to make a psychic was the Assistant Secretary of Defense uh, in the U.S. government. So I had Walter LaBerge come out and say, show me something psychic. And as Lance said, he'd go, his adjutant would go hide somewhere with Hal. And I sat with the undersecretary and say, well, you're going to have to close your eyes and describe where you think those two guys have gone. I don't know where it is, but just tell me what you see. And he drew a wonderful picture of a circular brick pavilion with a fountain and then we took him there, and he was blown away because the thing we were looking at is just what he had drawn. Couldn't believe it. As we wind down here, so, you know, Russell, you're talking about yourself and Pat Price and Ingo Swan and kind of the, 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 the OG generation of remote viewers. Is there a new generation coming up? Certain guys that you know can kind of continue on, you know, lighting the torch here for this amazing phenomenon? Yeah, we have the new generation in our movie. <laughs> yeah. that you can tell them the people that you shot the the young people yeah sure i mean um you know i i when we went to the uh, international remote viewing association conference in vegas that they hold you know there was a lot of young people there who were interested in this and and um there's a lot of them had never done it before, and and they were blown away that they were able to do remote viewing and just all of the sort of the work that was going on. I mentioned the iTunes Extra with the uh, the gamblers, you know, that's also on YouTube, um, and and those people are all working remote viewers, you know, today. I mean, they're like one of them, you know, Henry Gilroy, a, a friend of mine, is like the the head writer for Star Wars Rebels, mm. you know, and an executive producer for that, and and he's very open about talking about what he does with remote viewing because he says this is a tool that I use that helps me be better in my career, you know. It's, it's something that we all have, which is our ability to be intuitive and to make gut decisions. And um, I found that so fascinating because it's not something that's being used in some kind of uh, negative way or, uh, or scary way. It's just, you know, part of us and, you know, making good decisions and things like that. So, so uh, yeah, there's a whole generation of new people, but I think that it's still in its infancy, you know. And, and I think that as people are exposed to our film, I think that it's going to actually – uh, increase even more because, uh, you know, my goal was not as a filmmaker to, to turn you, Chris, into a true believer or, or even to turn myself into a true believer. I'm just there to document the history. I found the history fascinating. And I was very surprised to find how many people today are actually out there doing this stuff and, and using it in very varied ways. I mean, it's 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 a, a really kind of taken on a life of its own, but it's still very much below the surface. And I think that as 
time goes on and and we sort of start to accept the reality of ESP, which is uh, the title of Russell's last book, actually, you know, I think that it changes everything, you know, because because it just shows us what's really possible and what we what we can do as human beings. And I'm so honored that our film has had the ability to actually be seen by people and is and is out in the world because Russell and I, right up until the very end, we had no idea um, how widely this was going to be received and and how well it was going to be received. But it is being received well. I think I think let's going back to what you're saying too, as far as you know, I think there's been a real awakening for the power of the mind. And unlocking some of these things, even if it's something a little bit more mainstream, let's say yoga. I mean, yoga is very much a mental uh, healing as is a a physical. And even for myself, when I was told by three or four doctors, you need surgery on a back. I did yoga and it cleared it because of the mental powers of that. I think remote viewing is, is kind of another step. And just if you open your mind, it's amazing the, the, the accomplishments that we can achieve with it. Absolutely. And and I think also the more people that do it, um, it's kind of like a, a resonance where um, the more it's talked about, actually, the easier it becomes. And and, and this is something also that remote viewing instructors have, have told me that that um, the more people look at something, the easier it is to see. You know, the more you, you think about something through your own consciousness, it's, it's kind of viral in a way and it just sort of spreads. And uh, I find that you know, like Skip Atwater says in the film, you know, maybe all of this intelligent stuff that was done was just sort of the beginning. And maybe what this really is about is is about our own evolution as a species. And and hopefully what that's about is our own sense of um, understanding each other and, and developing a sense of empathy uh, for the world around us and for the people around us. Because well, um, we're doing in the film is giving people permission to get in touch with their own psychic abilities. We're, we're, we're demystifying and say, yes, you can sit down, quiet your mind and you can find your car keys. You can find your yeah. lost jewelry. Just, just sit down and be quiet and it'll appear. Last question for you, Russ. Um, what's the most harrowing experience you ever had or the most fantastic experience you ever had from remote viewing? Well, the most harrowing involved our search for Brezhnev's office in the Kremlin. We, there was a t- we were given the target, describe Brezhnev's office in the Kremlin. This is a, can you do this kind of experiment? So I was working with Hella Hammett, and she says, okay, I'm walking down a corridor. It's all covered with red upholstery, and the door at the end where red leather is held in place with big upholstery tacks. So I said, and I'm doing this with her, and I said, okay, I'll open the door, and she said, I see a door is open, but it's still dark. So I said, all right, Hella, I'll turn on the lights as though we're sharing a lucid dream. And then she said, oh, I see red squares out the window on the left. A giant wooden desk is on the right, covered with glass. And behind the desk, there's a stairway. Behind the desk is a door in the wall. And we open the door and go down the stairs and she could see a computer bay, big computer racks of computers on both sides of the stair. And I began to feel very nervous. I began to feel paranoid. I have a lot of clearances, but I don't have a clearance to be in the computer bay in the Kremlin. And I began to feel as though people are watching us or we're under surveillance. And with this, a flash of paranoia. And I said, okay, hell, I think we've told them enough. Let's get the hell out of here. So that was, that was the most fr- was a kind of 
feeling of oppression, like the walls were closing in on me. And and that and that actually is all. Um, it's it's a uh, it's briefly mentioned in the film, but we did a really extended version of that for for the iTunes extras and also for uh, the YouTube channel. Also, where where Russell tells that whole story of sort of going to Russia because you didn't actually tell them the end of the story, Russell. You should tell them about how it actually. Uh, what happened when you actually got to go visit that office? Oh, two years later, after I left SRI, I was invited as the Soviet Academy of Science. Well, can't you come to Russia and share share propaganda with us? And what they meant is, can you give a lecture at the Soviet Academy of Sciences? Which I did. And they said, is there anything you'd like to see while you're here? And I said, well, as long as we're in the Kremlin, I'd like to see Brezhnev's office. I don't have to meet the premier, but I would like to see what his office looks like. And they walked me down the hall, knocked on the red leather door and opened it. And I could see exactly what Hella described. Red square is out the window on the left. Big desk is on the right. And behind the desk, there's a door in the wall. I didn't ask to open the door because what I could see right in front of my face was exactly what Hella had described two years earlier. So this is my feedback where Hella had just described this uh, unusual office looking out the window at the Russian churches 6,000 miles from where we were in California. Wow. <laughs> I mean, so many experiences and... Just the incredible, the incredible concepts of the things you guys are talking about. And I guess just to wrap things up, do you feel that the U.S. government and the CIA will continue to use remote viewing and are other governments using it as well against us? I think that uh, that it's pretty obvious that that uh, the governments of the world understand, you know, sort of the 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 power of tools like this. But that said, they also have tools that are probably even more powerful because they, you know, they, they, they can probably hear whatever you're talking about on your cell phone. You know, like they can look up information. There's so many different ways to track people nowadays. But this is a, a tool that augments that in a way that is not always perfect. I mean, it's not like, you know, someone can track your every move, but it, but it still is useful. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, it's gone underground, not just in the United States, but um, even in the former Soviet Union. I actually interviewed a Ukrainian uh, scientist that, that didn't actually make the final cut of the documentary, but he told me that whereas back in the time when Russell was at SRI, you know, psychic abilities were very much talked about in the Soviet Union. Now in the former Soviet Union, it's it's uh, seen as very verboten, everything. Hmm. You know, you, it's just completely underground. They even banned the books on it. You know, so it, it's almost like maybe there has been sort of a move away from embracing this as as people have realized that it's more useful. And and I don't think it takes much because I don't think that it takes the Machiavellian guy twisting his mustache in the back room saying, um, you know, like, oh, we're going to really shut all this down. It's very easy to do because all it takes is just a little bit of belittling, you know, mm -hmm. a little bit of like, oh, you know, you're silly to think about this kind of stuff. It's, oh, you know, you're, you're worried about what your mom thinks, not what the CIA thinks. You know, and and I think that that's that's a big tool of sort of misinformation, and 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 you see it play out in a lot of ways. I mean, you see it play out not just in this field, but in in many different sort of sections of our society. It's much easier just to sort of discount and belittle something that kind of sounds unbelievable and hard to grasp anyway. Once we have a physics description of how this works, that as modern physics is getting closer and closer to remote viewing, that the idea of that we live in a non-local space-time which is the answer for 
quantum mechanics these days, uh, what we're describing is le less forbidden than it used to be. And not only that, but it's also something that has been described since the beginning of time. You know, like when I when I hear a quantum physicist speak, or I'm talking to Joe McMonagall, who's this like Vietnam, you know, veteran, big burly guy. You know, they they both start to sound like you know Buddhist monks or something. I mean, they they don't sound like the traditional sort of very dogmatic sciences because science is starting to sort of just open up because of so many unexplained things that they just haven't got a handle on yet. And that's what science should be. It should be something that is open-ended and asks questions and doesn't say we've already got all the answers because time and time again, we just get proven wrong. Well, guys, thank you so much. This has just been incredible. Uh, Third Eye Spies is the documentary and it's uh, some incredible stuff. And thanks, Russell, for your uh, life's work in, 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 in investigating and discussing this, uh, this tremendous, tremendous phenomenon. Well, thank yeah, you Russell. very much for the opportunity. We're very happy to chat with you. All right, guys, yeah. be safe. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for the for the talk. It was awesome. All right, thanks to Russell Targ and Lance Mungia. Uh, their fascinating new documentary about remote viewing is called Third Eye Spies, out now on iTunes, Amazon, YouTube, wherever you watch movies and documentaries. You can also see all the bonus footage and features at thirdeyespies.com. And like I promised, here we go. Ten of you lucky Talk is Jericho listeners, you sexy beasts, you, are about to score a free digital copy of Third Eye Spies. This is all you got to do. Hit me up on the Twitter, at Talk is Jericho. Tweet the name of the famous remote viewer who saw the ring around Jupiter. It's Ingo Swan. And use the hashtag Third Eye Spies. So tweet me the name Ingo Swan and use the hashtag Third Eye Spies at uh, Talk is Jericho. And I'll choose 10 right answers at random and you'll get a free digital copy of this documentary. Okay, go do it now. I can see you doing it. I can remote view you right now. See you walking over uh, to your to your phone and, and tweeting at, at Talk is Jericho. I can also see you going to ChrisJerichoCruise.com and booking your cabin for the upcoming rock and wrestling rage at sea part Deux. it's setting sail january 20th uh 2020 uh from miami to the bahamas and it's at about 80 percent sold out already we've only been on sale for about six weeks not many cabins left so please book today at chrisjerichocruise.com so you can join us on the best vacation ever and you can come hang with all the killer talent already announced for this incredible cruise how about the nwo scott hall kevin nash and x-pac jake the snake roberts booker t queen charmel Brad Williams is the host. Vicky Guerrero is the special cruise director, guest cruise director. And Shaw Guerrero, her daughter, uh, Eddie's, uh, Eddie's daughter as well, will also be on the ship. Fozzie's playing during the cruise. Farewell to Fear. Rubik's Cube, the greatest 80s cover band you've ever heard. Killer Queens, the greatest female queen cover band. That's the new edition. Eric Bischoff will be there with Conrad Thompson. They're going to do 83 weeks. Booker T's going to do his Hall of Fame podcast. Of course, live talk is Jericho, as always. Jack Slade is the mascot and the keeper of the ice for the cruise. MVP is going to be there doing his one-man show. So much going on. The Dave Spivak Project is back. Jared James Nichols will be playing. AEW, the biggest stars on the hottest uh, wrestling company in the world today. AEW is going to be there. DDP is returning to host more live yoga workshops on the ship. Beyond the Darkness providing creepy paranormal events. Talentless just gets longer and longer. We'll be announcing more incredible names coming up next week. So book now at ChrisJerichoCruise.com do it now coming up on wednesday the mascot of the cruise and the keeper of the ice jack slade returns for the best worst wrestlemania preview ever we're gonna do it i might not be allowed to have WWE guests on the show anymore but it doesn't mean i can't do my uh, best worst review for wrestlemania can't wait we'll see you then have a great weekend stay hard stay hungry peace love and hugs and a big yeah boy and i'm closing my eyes and i'm seeing you right now going to chrisjerichocruise.com and booking your cabin we'll see you on uh, next week